afternoon, everybody, uh, and welcome to this uh, final session of the day. Uh, my name is Philip Cornell. Uh, I'm a principal at uh, The Economist Group uh, and the lead for, for energy and sustainability. Um, our discussion in this panel uh, is about energy, uh, but also about economic and business dynamics uh, within the context of uncertainties and constraints uh, in the U.S.-Arab relationship. And I'm pleased uh, to be joined, uh, as Dr. Anthony uh, mentioned, uh, by Dr. Shihab Quran, President and CEO of Edison Power, uh, and virtually uh, by Dr. John uh, Svakianakis, um, the Chief Economist at the Gulf Research Center. So um, welcome, uh, gentlemen. Uh, we'll each provide some opening uh, remarks and then move into a Q&A session. Um, so those in the audience, please be thinking uh, about your questions. Uh, put up your hand if you have a question. We have people in the aisles that will bring you a card to write your question, and then we'll collate them. So we can see over here and over here. Uh, so just raise your hand uh, if you have uh, something to ask. So gentlemen, let me just start with uh, a few words as to why I see this discussion uh, to be so timely. And I would see that, that those three reasons are uh, the macroeconomic situation, uh, the political rift uh, this month since the OPEC uh, cut, and the dawning reality of the energy transition. So first, the current uh, macroeconomic and energy market environment um, is one where the Gulf uh, is doing relatively well. Uh, inflationary pressures are primarily uh, about the end of the COVID pandemic uh, and how we dealt with it, and only secondarily uh, about the war in Ukraine. Rising prices are about uh, supplies struggling to recover after drastic cutbacks in 2020, uh, colliding with pent-up demand fueled by savings and government stimulus, including for energy. What the war in Ukraine has done is to create massive uncertainty about global energy supplies, among other commodities, and acute localized shocks, specifically in Europe for natural gas. And to the degree that energy is experiencing supply jitters, uh, they have delivered a windfall to producers, uh, and including those in the Gulf. Uh, but energy is also on the precipice of a massive demand shock, with a structural recession looming over Western economies and as China stokes its own structural downturn with bad policy. Extremely rapid interest rate hikes across the OECD economies, especially uh, when they feel like a panicked response uh, to an economic situation that is worse uh, than perhaps central bankers had thought, means that reasonable market observers perceive a hard landing in the near term. And those reasonable observers include OPEC producers. So last month's OPEC supply cut was bigger than the market expected, and many in Washington say it must be about politics. The outcries in D.C. of betrayal and Saudi alignment with Russia uh, demonstrate the second reason, I think, for this meeting's timeliness, and that's that the relationship between the U.S. and the Gulf has fundamentally changed since the mid-2010s, and some in Washington are only now realizing that. The leadership, the economic trajectory, and the popular sense of purpose in the Gulf are fundamentally different. So those in DC who see the, the region through the old rubric of energy for security, where Gulf 
countries are second-tier players in a Cold War-style alliance might consider it a priority to exercise U.S. leverage over regional issues uh, like human rights or extremism. But that thinking is at least a decade past its sell date. For Gulf leaders, especially in Riyadh, the security side of the old partnership started breaking down almost a decade ago. And they also saw the writing on the wall for the long-term oil economy. Oil will remain a major source of financing to drive change, but it's not the geopolitical driver of the future. That's clear in Riyadh and certainly clear in Abu Dhabi uh, and among smaller producers. Diversification is, is existential, oil is transactional. And so the White House's reaction to the latest OPEC cut, talking of aligning with Russia, was one-sided. To be betrayed uh, implies that you're still in a marriage. But on the Saudi side, there is no marriage. They seem to recognize an ongoing partnership where interests overlap, but no alliance in the old sense uh, with all the obligations that implies. Were there some politics and some emotions inside the OPEC plus cut, sure. It was bigger than expected uh, and probably reflected some frustration with the Washington-backed plan to cap European prices uh, on Russian oil. But Riyadh and Abu Dhabi have been ignoring U.S. pleas to raise production throughout 2022 because it's not in producers' interests. And they see oil market management and specifically maintaining price stability for investors to be especially important as we enter a messy and volatile decade of energy transition. And that's the the third reason why the discussion today is timely. The energy transition is expected to cost about 2 to 3 percent uh, of global GDP in this decade. It's a cost that has been downplayed to voters and to consumers, but one that industry has committed to. Now that companies are contending with the realities of implementing sustainability and clean energy strategies, especially in the context of high interest rates and volatile commodity prices, they're starting to realize the practical meaning of net zero commitments. Part of that is to burst the optimistic fantasy that emissions-free alternatives will simply scale to fill the gap left by choking off fossil fuel financing or by offloading brown assets from one portfolio onto another. As transition accelerates, threats to global energy security are likely to grow. Western policy will struggle to man uh, manage this gargantuan task of orchestrating a seamless shift while keeping energy affordable and accessible. And the Gulf region is taking a strategic approach to that challenge in line with plans for overall economic transformation. And that means producing some of the lowest cost renewable energy in the world and enthusiastically encouraging low emissions technology deployment from buildings to waste management to agriculture and hard to abate sectors. And that also makes it an attractive destination for international finance with some of the most bankable projects in low carbon uh, technology underpinned by stable long-term policy uh, and government de-risk Investors are enthusiastically looking to the region as a relatively certain place to invest amidst political and economic turmoil uh, elsewhere. And all of that together means that the energy, economic, and business dynamics uh, are at a crossroads. So uh, I think it's, again, great moments to be having that discussion. And with that, I want to turn uh, to the other speakers that we have today uh, and to get their views on how these dynamics are playing out. So maybe I can start uh, with uh, Dr. Curran. Uh, please, I think you have some slides. So yes. I'll turn over to you, uh, and then we'll, um, we'll get uh, the next comments. 
Thank you, Phil. Dr. Anthony, uh, thanks for having me back uh, at your conference here. I, I spoke uh, back in 2012, and I've been uh, coming back to listen to uh, very informative and candid discussions uh, at this policy conference. So I, I decided to put some slides together this time uh, and, and throw in some uh, physics and chemistry language just to uh, kind of stir it up a little bit. Uh, but effectively, some data to support what Phil has mentioned. Uh, those specialists in the energy sector, there are some known facts about the U.S.-Arab energy transactions or strategies or policies. And I want to share with you some data uh, just to ground the discussion and, and put a, f a framework uh, of what's happening now and pick an example of two of potential uh, policy or commerce uh, uh, initiatives that can happen vis-a-vis -vis the energy transition. So I'm with Power Edison, uh, uh, a private company that I founded about seven years ago. Look, uh, we're US-based. Uh, but throughout my career, I had the pleasure of uh, developing uh, power and energy projects in the US uh, and several projects in the Middle East. I had the, uh, the privilege of kind of sitting on both sides of the pond, if you wish, looking at policy, looking at actual projects. Uh, we've all seen uh, this old European adage of the fact that countries don't have permanent enemies or permanent friends, but have interests. Uh, we've seen this repeated many times, actually throughout the day today. We've heard uh, panelists and speakers talk about uh, commerce, uh, driving policy, and although General Petraea said uh, maybe for a change, uh, geopolitics can drive commerce, kind of in reverse, but that's the exception. So effectively, uh, uh, common interests that lead into commerce drive policy. And as we look today, I'll, I'll kind of limit my remarks to the energy side, and I know other co-panels will speak broadly about uh, business policy, but I'll talk about the energy uh, sector. This is, this is a very telling uh, chart. Might be a little bit busy, but uh, this is the U.S. petroleum consumption, production, imports, exports, and net imports. And the data runs almost through the beginning of 2020, and Phil gave me some additional data to extrapolate <coughs> from here. The bottom line is the U.S. today is a net exporter of petroleum. And that has not obviously been the case, that historically the U.S. has been a major importer of petroleum, and obviously we, we know why and where it goes. Uh, petroleum has very high energy density. It finds its place in the transportation sector because you're moving and you want to carry your energy with you. So this is where the physics and the chemistry come into play, that petroleum is a transportation fuel. Petroleum is not used in the United States for energy or power production. It's used for transportation. It is a really bad use of petroleum to be burned to generate electricity. There are other sources, whether it's coal, whether it's natural gas, whether nuclear, you know, any other sources, the last place you want to go to for electricity generation are liquid fuels. So today the U.S. is a net, is a net exporter, or at least not importer, and 
historically the U.S. have imported that liquid fuel from the Middle East. Uh, but as Phil pointed out, not for the last 10 years. Yet you go to policy conferences, you go to a lot of places where people think we're still dependent on liquid fuel or petroleum out of the Middle East and thus try to design or drive policy, at least in the energy space. I'm not talking about defense, I'm not talking about human rights or other factors or other areas. I'm talking about the energy as if we are still an importer, and we're not. Um, the other uh, mega factor or mega trend here is that we have an energy transition going on. We are electrifying our transportation sector. We're saying even if we need liquid fuels or petroleum, we want that to be, as an energy source, we want it to be decarbonized, so no hydrocarbons. So first of all, we're not, we don't need it. And second, if we need the fuel, it's not that type of fuel that the Middle East is producing today. Well, to add to that, uh, people say, well, the Middle East has a lot of solar energy. Well, so does the US. Uh, we have solar energy in Arizona, in Southern California, in a lot of places in the US. So effectively, if you remove that key commerce in, when, when it comes to energy between the Middle East and the US, how do you drive new interests that can drive friendship, that can drive policy? <clears throat> and another key fact, just to kind of keep in mind, is that we are oceans apart. And I say this because if you look at a lot of the announcements out of the Middle East when it comes to new energy partners or when it comes to whether it's hydrogen, whether it's connecting grids, whether it's connecting gas supplies, you don't see that as being between the U.S. and the Arab world. You see Europe, you see Asia, for the obvious reasons that we are oceans apart. And many of those energy sources are not economical when you try to bring it over the pond to the U.S. Uh, this, is, uh, this might be a bit uh, of an eye chart, but effectively, if the ideal fuel for anything we want to use should be up here, something that has very high energy density per weight and very high energy density per volume. And so you see liquid fuels that have been dominant, especially for the transportation sector, right here. You can ignore the lithium borohydride. That's more of a, a compound that's hard to make and remake, so it really is just there for, for accuracy and data completion, but liquid fuels have been the dominant form of transportation fuel. Next to that, we see things like ethanol, or methanol, or liquid ammonia. If you look at some of the most recent announcements out of the Middle East, you'll see, for example, a leading company called Aqua Power, which is uh, publicly listed on the Saudi Stock Exchange, have teamed up with a company called Air Products for the generation of uh, green hydrogen. You see an entity like Masdar, <coughs> signing very large deals with European entities, again, for ammonia or for hydrogen. Again, these tend to be local partners where that distance is not a killer when it comes to that commerce. So we're saying now that the U.S. is not importing that product. The U.S. wants a different type of product. Well, what is it? What can fill that gap? If there's anything that can fill that gap, and is it to the scale that we historically had between the Arab world and the U.S. 
And so I, I don't have a perfect answer. I'm just going to throw some ideas and slides again for for discussion point. Uh, but it is it's a sobering moment that we can't do business and assume that we have such large-scale commerce like before, and specifically underpinned by petroleum. So we, we've heard throughout the day uh, discussions about where you know policy, and we'll talk about it on this panel with uh, my esteemed colleagues. Uh, I'll talk a little bit about technology, capital. Some of you might have seen an announcement by the UAE and the U.S. governments announcing a hundred billion dollar uh, agreement for joint investment and so on. Uh, but if you dig into it. Uh, I haven't seen something where a product, let's say, is made in the Middle East and brought to the U.S. You see joint investments, you see some developing countries' investments. Why? Because of the reality of physics and chemistry and the distance that we have when it comes to the new fuels. And obviously regional supply, or supply to Europe, or supply to Asia, uh, we have something beyond the butterfly effect, meaning regional supply does impact uh, say, gasoline price in the United States, as Phil has mentioned at the beginning. I'm going to pick a topic here, uh, which is materials for batteries, as, as a topic that uh, might have a silver lining and potentially could be a new thread or a new area of collaboration between the U.S. and the Arab world. Uh, in order to accelerate the energy transition, we obviously see that uh, e-mobility or trans the electrification of the transportation sector and primarily by electric vehicles is a, a massive investment area. As a matter of fact, uh, Bloomberg uh, New Energy Finance published in March that the e-mobility sector in terms of an investment had exceeded that of solar and wind combined. Jesus. So effectively electric vehicles, batteries and so on have exceeded that of solar and wind combined. And the solar industry alone is actually a trillion dollar plus industry worldwide over a few years. So we're talking about very large expenditure associated with the electrification of the transportation sector. And uh, interestingly, if you look at the 2020 generation capacity of batteries, these are some international leading companies. So you look at the blue color, and you look at the projections, even as, you know, 2025 is just around the corner, these green dots, you can see it's, it's an explosion of production of batteries. And when you look at those batteries that are used either for grid storage, kind of for the grid, or for transportation, they're primarily lithium-based batteries. Uh, you know, this chemical reaction has been around for billions of years. It's, you know, it's kind of nature had it, and it, it has a characteristic where it has a high round-trip efficiency, meaning you put the energy in, you take it out, you get more than 90% back. And that's a good, good trade going in and out with that energy and the ease of, of producing lithium batteries. And if you go further, uh, you look at some of the chemistries. I don't mean to bore you with those, but you'll see the various chemical compounds that go into batteries. And I want to bring your attention, for example, to what's called the LFP, that's lithium iron phosphate. It's actually taking over at a higher percentage. This is a, a data chart. I didn't find a more recent one. But LFP is what Elon has switched over to with the China-based Teslas and many others. It's safer. It doesn't depend on cobalt or some other 
uh, elements that are not sourced or mined responsibly. So lithium is an abundant salt around the world. Iron and phosphate, they kind of tend to be elements that you can find them. So for example, can the Arab world participate in the battery revolution? And can it participate in specifically the dominant technology that's taken over? So I, I look further, and if we look at the top 10 phosphate-producing countries, according to the USGS, the US Geological Survey, we actually find that five out of the top 10 <coughs> producers of phosphate in the world are from the Arab world. It's an interesting fact. And uh, so effectively, it is clearly an area for um, you know, good, good kind of food for thought. The US is embarking on a major transition, energy transition, uh, looking for new supply. We know that China has done a good job much earlier trying to find sources, minerals, you know, rare earth materials, and so on. So five out of the top 10 producing countries in the world uh, in phosphates happen to be uh, Arab countries. And I, I've seen a report where China decided to um, cap their domestic production of phosphates at 100 million tons a year. Phosphate production is environmentally involved. It has a big environmental footprint on water, on land, and so on. And maybe they wanted to kind of ration their reserves over many, many years from a national security perspective. Now, kind of don't produce it all at once and empty empty reserves out. So that gives a chance for other countries around the world, and in particular the um, Arab countries, to become key participants and have a, a seat at the table when it comes to the LFP chemistry of batteries. Um, there's also data out of Saudi Arabia uh, that there's uh, large deposits of different minerals that are directly applicable to battery manufacturing in uh, what is called the Arabian Shield. Um, and if we move over, this is a bit hard to read, but if we look at the world lithium deposits, we see that Chile and Australia have a large uh, uh, reserves, and the production kind of is where it's happening today. Uh, but I dug deeper and found a number of scientific publications to show that the Dead Sea, even though it's a sea, uh, it has high concentration of uh, lithium. Typically, seas and oceans are about 3% weight, uh, salt by weight, so that's 30,000 parts per million. The Dead Sea is actually 30%. It's 10 times saltier than the average oceans or seas. And lithium is a key component in the Dead Sea water. And if you tally up the reserves of lithium in the Dead, Dead Sea, it actually comes out to be second after Chile. But no one talks about it. You don't even see it on charts that publish where the lithium exists. Additionally, if you look at desalination plants in the Gulf, the brine that comes out of you know, RO, reverse osmosis desalination plants, has a high concentration of salts, and there's actually a high concentration of lithium. Lithium is everywhere, but you need to find it at commercially viable concentrations. So you can potentially mine lithium out of desalination plants, and there are a lot of publications out there on the subject. So uh, this is my last slide, effectively to say, look, um, we have to, if we're talking about the US Arab, policy vis-a-vis -vis energy, we have to understand and respect realities. 
including distance, including physics, including chemistry. And we have to get on with the energy transition train, and it's kind of new reality, new chemicals, new minerals um, that drive behavior, that drive policy. And while the world still needs oil, when it comes to the energy transition, especially US-Arab relationships, um, there's a lot of legwork to be done, a lot of research, and understanding when it comes to what is it that we can do in the energy transition. Thank you. Great. Uh, thanks very much, Shahab. I mean, what we take away from that, or at least what I hear you saying, uh, is that as interests change, um, business interests change from sort of traditional energy uh, interdependence uh, to the energy transition, uh, uh, the, the, the volume is different. I mean, certainly the Arab world will be able to, you know, provide material inputs uh, in terms of critical minerals, uh, but I think as we uh, saw, for example, in the deal uh, this week uh, on uh, clean energy partnership between the UAE and the US, uh, that even beyond uh, basic materials, uh, there's a partnership there, right, around yeah. capital and technology and, mm -hmm. and, and exchanging ideas. Um, we'll get to that in a moment. Uh, again, I want to remind everybody, raise your hand. There will be cards to come to you uh, to, to, to ask questions, and we'll, we'll get to those in the Q&A. Maybe, Shahab, we could uh, talk a little bit uh, about what, what you discussed, um, and particularly about sort of the, the energy uh, reality. Um, you know. Uh, it's true that, uh, you know, so let me turn to one of our questions. I mean, we saw here that, you know, the U.S. itself might not, you know, might be uh, energy insufficient, energy sufficient, but its most important allies, for example, Japan, uh, India, uh, are highly dependent on GCC oil. And so that sort of fossil fuel dependence remains uh, key. Um, so isn't it in the U.S. interest to keep that energy secure uh, for its broader uh, global relationships? Yeah, for sure. I think uh, we have been, in the US, always uh, a leader when it comes to international relations, uh, global peace, uh, global trade and commerce. And uh, we have to look at GCC oil, in this case, in that lens, rather than it's a specific product that we needed back here. Uh, the world will continue to need hydrocarbon products for a while because, at least for two reasons. One, it is absolutely today what uh, supports energy security. We can't have energy security today without hydrocarbon products. And second, whether uh, the U.S. economy or European economy or any other economies, the stability of that economy and generating uh, profits or generating revenue is going to be key to finance the energy transition. So one, you need it for energy security, and second, you need it to finance energy transition. Now, if you are wearing a hat as, a, as an oil producing country in the Middle East, your calculus has to change as well, meaning who are your direct customers as compared to a third party who has uh, a secondary or tertiary interest, and second, uh, this product that you're selling, if the U.S. today is saying, I want it to be decarbonized, Europe, even in the midst of a potential armed conflict at a broader scale, still says, I want clean fuel. I mean, I, I think that's an interesting comment and commitment. So as Europe is securing supply for the winter and beyond, they are still not abandoning decarbonized solutions. You see that with the Canadian deal, you see it with the UAE, you see it with others. 
And I think that's a, a commitment to be respected and applauded. Um, so, but for the GCC countries or oil producing countries, what is it that you do? And, and that's not an easy answer. I think there's like probably five or 10 policy drivers for that answer. Yeah, I mean, I think really what we're seeing is sort of a short-term versus long-term uh, uh, contrast here, right? I mean, and for a lot of Europe in particular, um, you know, the argument would be accelerating actually the energy transition to reduce dependence, not only on Russian gas, but on gas in general becomes a priority. So in fact, the energy transition becomes a way out uh, of this uh, energy insecurity dilemma. But in the short term, uh, they certainly send mixed messages, uh, and so Washington as well sends mixed messages to many of the Gulf partners or producing partners, uh, saying invest, invest in oil and gas, also depending on the countries today, because we need this. But by the way, uh, there's going to be over the long term. This is a dying industry, um, and so how do you think that those? countries are dealing with those mixed messages between the short term and the long term, uh, and, and how are they internalizing it uh, in terms of pursuing their own energy transitions? I mean, I think within the power mix of the Middle East as of last year, still 90% of power is coming from thermal energy, yes. um, uh, despite the fact that they produce at such a low rate in terms of uh, renewable power. So uh, those two questions, how should yeah. they produce thermal energy and how does it affect their own sort of energy situation? Yeah, I think there's no doubt in, in the near term uh, that the world needs hydrocarbon products. That's, that's it. So to, to address the near-term question, uh, you do want to have that investment and maintain that investment because not every country around the world is decarbonizing. Mm. Uh, Africa is not decarbonizing at the rate, or Pakistan, or India, or even China. Uh, I saw a documentary this morning where the Chinese companies are building coal plants in Indonesia to secure nickel for batteries. So the carbonized fossil fuel is still on the rise at a global level. Second, I think there are technologies that might have legs to them, like carbon capture. And carbon capture is very interesting. You can have solvent-based solutions, you can have membrane-based solutions, and you as a carbon, there's uh, scope one, two, and three for those in the space. Scope one is the energy footprint of your own operations, scope two is kind of your suppliers, scope three, the footprint of your product. So if you're an oil company selling oil, you have a massive scope three footprint. But you yeah. can, okay. how can you sell, for example, oil that has zero carbon footprint? You can do that by, for example, doing net carbon, mm -hmm. meaning your, carb, your oil that's gonna ship, say, to Europe and be used in vehicles will have a carbon footprint in Europe, but you might be capturing carbon in Africa. And so, you know, people talk about blockchain and other methods where you say, look, this oil that I'm selling you, even though it's a commodity, I have a certificate where I'm going to be capturing 10 or 100% of that carbon that you're going to emit elsewhere. That's a net carbon strategy, like we've done with net metering when it comes to the grid with electricity. So, um, I think to come back to your initial question about short-term and long-term. Short-term, I think the commitment has to be there, especially for all producing countries, because it's the currency that feeds development. It's the currency that can finance the transition for them. But at the same time, I'm always optimistic when it comes to technology. I'm, a, I'm an engineer at heart and by education. 
So I always believe there is a solution out there. It's a matter of economics, it's a matter of commitment. So in the long term, actually today, we have solutions that can capture that carbon at a cost. Yeah, and I would say I think that's probably the argument coming from OPEC producers as well uh, in terms of maintaining an environment with sufficient investment in order to deter uh, a, you know, a future energy crisis and downturn um, that could impact uh, development. I think we have John now uh, online. Can, can you hear us? Hello. Ah, there we are. Okay, thanks very much, John. Let me turn it over to you. They want you to meet with them. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, it's uh, it's one thirty in the morning, so probably in Abu Dhabi. So the wiring system got sleepy, um, and um, they went to sleep the wires, and probably I couldn't connect because of that. But I I heard you all very well. Um, I want to make a few comments um, only because I am I really want to contribute to your discussion on some of these things and um, I've been reading and listening um, on this interesting debate about decarbonization. I think policymakers and especially politicians have discovered the word decarbonization over the last year and year and a half. Uh, and I'm afraid to say that decarbonization is not going to happen as quickly as they think or they promise their constituents, um, nor is it going to be clean. Uh, as we decarbonize, I think we're going to carbonize before we decarbonize. And it's not going to be very simple. Um, none of the mines that exist comply with any of these ESG rules and, and duties if we are to produce the kind of material that is required uh, for the so-called uh, future. And over the last 20 years that I've been observing the debate about oil, um, there have been two main themes. One is that oil uh, at some point is not going to be wanted. Hence, um, the oil producing countries uh, are going to disappear. And the perennial uh, discussion and debate that Gulf economies um, are at a perilous um, uh, path to to this, to self destruction, if I may say so, and both of them are, in my opinion, the largest myths I've seen uh, when we encounter this debate about the future of the Gulf. And related to this is, of course, decarbonization, which uh, now is uh, the lollipop of politicians in the West. I'm afraid to say that um, if the oil producing countries do not invest, um, oil is not going to be at 94 <clears throat> or 95, which is where we have it today. That is Brent. Uh, it's probably going to be at 295. And uh, nobody <clears throat> seems to be investing. And the transition is going to be far more difficult especially if we move into this uh, decarbonization transition uh, than we think. So um, again, this is a, a kind of a deja vu, um, as we've seen, as I've seen at least in the mid-2000s, um, uh, a similar debate about uh, peak oil. 
and peak oil came and left and now we have the new discovery which is decarbonization so if we don't have the mines and we don't have copper and we don't have zinc and we haven't yet discovered enough lithium ion uh, ion uh, mines to get that product um, i'm afraid that um, the world is not going to move into this electrified future um, as um, a lot of the pundits and policymakers uh, and politicians are trying to use as a way to get out of the mess a lot of them have created, um, which is a self-inflicted mess um, of many of the countries, not just um, in the West, but in particularly, I would say, Europe. Um, so it is far more challenging than just uh, using this debate that we're going to decarbonize. I think the safest bet is to say that Gulf oil producing countries, but in general, Middle East oil producing countries, not to forget um, uh, Libya and Algeria, which are significant participants in this, and of course not to um, exclude uh, Iraq as well as Iran in this case. Um, they have been investing as much as they can in order to facilitate and supply um, oil into the market. Um, and so I think that they're doing their best uh, to, to address future challenges. And of course, we're easy to ignore uh, and forget that um, they have been the ones taking this uh, frontal issue when it comes to investments. Um, these investments are um, from their own uh, revenues. These are um, investments that um, are self-generated and they are put back into um, a lot of these uh, oil-producing facilities. So. Um, enough with the commentary. Let me just say a few words about the macro outlook and uh, where we are. And of course, one of the difficult things uh, is that um, um, when I'm asked to make a comment about the Middle East, it's um, uh, difficult because there is no one Middle East. There are many parts of the Middle East. Um, and uh, Morocco is facing a very different um, situation than um, some of the countries in the Gulf, the UAE, Saudi Arabia, Qatar, and, um, and not to forget Egypt in terms of their situation today. So I think we need to uh, traditionally continue to differentiate between the oil producing and the non-oil producing countries. And I think the oil producing countries have done very well will continue to do well, and they will continue to accumulate reserves uh, to be used uh, in the process for transitioning their economies into the post-oil future, uh, which, of course, um, many in Washington believe that uh, the post-oil future is with us. And suddenly, you know, in the next two, three years, the world is going to, again, decarbonize. I think this is as ludicrous as me trying to pretend that economics is not important in the Middle East. So I would urge uh, policymakers um, to read a little bit of uh, history and be aware that uh, decarbonization in general uh, cannot happen in two or three or five years. Oil is very much uh, going to be needed. And I would actually... Um, uh, refer to comments of uh, none other than Elon Musk, 
um, who said that um, oil is going to be needed uh, much more than what we think if we want to decarbonize. So I believe um, the oil producing countries are at the pinnacle of um, helping and aiding many of our efforts to decarbonize, which is good for our climate and our future. But this is going to happen through uh, the good offices of the oil producing countries. Now, if I am to say very quickly what I think is the immediate future of the macroeconomic um, situation in, in the Middle East, I think that the, the war has created, um, the war in Ukraine has created uh, certainly very uh, challenging situations and circumstances for the oil important countries. And of course, I will mention here none other than Egypt. Egypt has been facing a very difficult uh, economic situation. Um, uh, their currency has been devalued as a result of the difficulties by more than 50%. Uh, recently, they agreed to an IMF agreement, but certainly uh, the Ukraine crisis has um, created um, head, um, headwinds that uh, they did not desire, uh, uh, and they were not uh, wishing for such things to happen. But in, in all events, Egypt, in my opinion, has handled the crisis exceptionally well. Um, I haven't seen an economy where uh, between March and today, a currency has been devalued by more than 50%, and we haven't really seen uh, any significant uh, social events um, and, and uh, unrest happening. Uh, certainly, I think the, the, the regime and, and the population has managed the difficulties of the inflationary pressures. Uh, but at the same time, um, um, again, Egypt has maintained its stability. Uh, but Egypt is um, um, a victim of what we have uh, seen mm -hmm. as a result of this uh, crisis in Ukraine. And it's the, the counterfactual of what we have seen in many of the countries of the Gulf, where they have uh, done quite well, they continue to do well, transitioning into this um, um, post-oil future. Um, let me highlight a few things about uh, the, the headwinds in terms of downside risks, um, only because uh, often economics is referred to as the uh, science of, of the dismal. And, you know, this is partially true, but it's not also the case. But certainly we need to highlight some of the risks. And one of the risks is uh, the issue of domestic inflation which um, many of the countries, if not all of the countries in the Middle, Middle East could continue to face, and this could be broadened further. Um, certainly, uh, a related downside risk is something that uh, was said before, and I will highlight it once again, which is the situation in China. If China's slowdown persists, uh, this could affect uh, many countries, especially uh, the oil-producing countries, because they do export um, petrochemicals and oil. And of course, uh, countries such as Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates, uh, majority of their oil goes to Asia. And within that, China is the biggest, the biggest recipient. So there are many spillover effects that could impact the appetite of um, a lot of these products, depending on how uh, China manages its slowdown, whether it's a deep recession or 
a gradual slowdown that that will have an impact on the region and certainly um, higher <clears throat> food prices and more pervasive food and energy shortages uh, could lead to further food insecurity and uh, and concerns about stability in some of the uh, more um, oil dependent uh, Middle Eastern countries. The case in point is rising fertilizer costs. That could be an issue. And of course, that, that uh, will um, create a lot of demand for support by um, um, aid agencies and international financial institutions. Um, mm. Finally, you know, I, I want to, to finish with this, that if we are to be entering a more of a globalized recession, Certainly, like we saw in 2008, um, uh, this is not going to leave uninterrupted and unimpacted the price of oil. I think the price of oil, um, whether uh, OPEC decides to uh, lower production or not, uh, eventually the unavoidable will happen, which is that the market will dictate where the price of oil will go. And as a result, oil prices should fall. Um, in 2008, uh, it took about five months for oil prices to decline significantly and to go into the $40 uh, a barrel level. I am not um, am here uh, prophetic, but, you know, markets have their own way and markets dictate where prices mm -hmm. are. Uh, OPEC cannot dictate that, nor can anybody else dictate. Uh, OPEC can, on can only take um, a forward position and take uh, precautionary measures as they did to accommodate for this decline that it sees in the demand of oil. And, and one last comment is uh, kind of on the geopolitical front, which, which is that um, the, fragmenta the fragmentation of the world economy could magnify these risks. I do believe that uh, the war in Ukraine could contribute to a further fragmentation of the world economy into geopolitical blocks. And the region, the Middle East, um, will have to decide where, where it lies based on its trade um, future and its linkages, uh, both with Europe and the US, as well as China, uh, given the medium-term outlook for many of these countries. And I think that as we move into that, Many of the Middle Eastern countries will have to accommodate for the security of supply of their products and the targets that they have to localize many of, of, the, of the manufacturing of these um, products uh, down the road. So I think right. that it, um, it, um, it um, shows that uh, we are in a, in a challenging situation, but I think uh, the oil-producing countries are better off today than they were uh, several years ago, for sure. Um, uh, the Saudi Arabia, uh, just to finish with this, that I've known, uh, is a very different country. There are two Saudi Arabias, um, one before 2016 and one after 2016. I think Saudi Arabia is far better off today with the reforms and the transitioning into this transformative uh, future than the Saudi Arabia than we knew pre-2016. Thank you.
very Great. much. Thanks very much, John. Um, and I think you hit on some really important topics there. One that I take away in particular uh, is the need for investment, particularly in the oil and gas sector. I think the IEA has been ringing the alarm bells around insufficient investment into oil and gas uh, for a long time. Uh, and even in the most green scenarios, uh, we're still talking about a massive dependence uh, on particularly oil as well as gas uh, as far out as 2050. Um, I think the question about an investment environment is very much about the volatility of prices. Um, you know, we've just come off a decade uh, of American shale really uh, giving uh, a run for the money in terms of affecting uh, margins in some of the fossil fuel business over the past 10 years. We then saw a price crash, of course, uh, in uh, the beginning of 2020 around the pandemic, uh, and now price spikes in particular, uh, you know, around gas and in particular uh, sectors of oil products, um, uh, not even because of specifically of acute shortages, but because of jitters uh, around future supply. So it gives an idea about how fragile uh, is the investment, uh, let's say the price uh, environment, uh, and how that impacts uh, investment. Uh, and of course, that investment in the maintenance of a strong economy underpins the ability to invest in, in clean energy. Um, that feeds into some of the questions that we've uh, received here. Um, a uh, couple that seem in the same category. Um, wouldn't all of the above strategy that includes both hydrogen and electricity um, be in the best interests uh, of the uh, of the Gulf region? And there are similar ones here. Uh, what form of renewable or clean energy should Arab countries be implementing? So what is the best mix? Uh, yeah. And where should investment be going across the region? Yeah, there was uh, a paper published at uh, Princeton University about 20 years ago that it's called the seven wedges. It effectively says uh, the future policy and dependence on energy is a mix. Kind of each one is a wedge, nuclear, gas, you know, oil, uh, wind, solar, hydro, and, and others. I think the same is true for the Middle East, whether for uh, self-consumption, whether for regional export, whether for, like I, I just read about a project, for uh, green ammonia, for bunker fuels, for ships that pass through the Suez Canal. You know, that's an interesting project. You've got a transport fuel that needs to be energy dense and it needs to be decarbonized. So uh, establish it right there. Um, I think as Africa evolves, the economies evolve and require more energy, where's that energy gonna come from? Uh, so the, my answer is always, it, it's never binary, it's never black and white, it's never a one-trick pony. I think it's going to be all of the above. And you'll always find a remote location mm -hmm. that might not have a lot of sun or might not have a lot of wind, and thus some form of dependent you know, liquid fuel or something like that is needed. So the short answer is, frankly, all of the above. And then when it comes to a specific country, for example, the country of Jordan has fantastic solar resources uh, and it doesn't have oil. So clearly solar energy makes sense for them. Same for Lebanon. Uh, in Saudi Arabia, there are more choices. Great. Um, 
Uh, I, I want to move to another one. You, you discussed sort of Jordan and Lebanon. We talked about two Middle Easts. You know, there's the producers and there's the consumers. Uh, and certainly a lot of those consumers are not only at the mercy of energy prices, but also of the import of products that are derivatives, whether it's fertilizer that affects food uh, or, 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 or others. So um, uh, there's one question here asking about uh, the climate energy resource nexus, so food and water security, and how is that going to impact the stability of the area uh, and the, uh, the possibility for space for more cooperation. So maybe, John, I can turn that over to you. Uh, what do you see to be this uh, nexus uh, between energy and, as we see today, the knock-on impacts on food, uh, but also thinking about water and livability in the region uh, under climate pressure? Yeah. Yeah, I, I think the question is excellent because it's hitting on all the difficult questions that need to be answered, and certainly I don't have an answer. Um, I think uh, on the waterfront, if um, the region doesn't integrate um, and think of common solutions, they will just have to... Um, <clears throat> keep on wishing for a better day, but the better day will never come. Uh, water is becoming a, a very, very concerning problem uh, for all the countries. And it's not just the countries that didn't have traditionally climatically water, which is obviously the Gulf countries, but now even the better endowed countries such as Egypt is having extreme problems um, of addressing its, its agriculture. And um, if Egypt is trying to export and find a future, um, uh, that cannot be done without water, regardless of where the technology is. Um, so that needs to have a, a regional common answer and i think the region needs to get closer rather than where we are today um, uh, through integration and i think what the gulf is trying to do has to be replicated um, in the rest of the middle east which is having um, a more of a, a tactical repositioning of its future in in many of these um, technologies and using energy as a platform for that future. Yeah, and you know, certainly, Shahab, you and I were speaking before about the interconnectivity in the region, uh, the fact that trade, including in energy, has been sort of a long-standing wish, especially outside the GCC. There's been the most yeah. sort of progress made in the GCC. Um, but you know, whether it's just energy trade or it's uh, intra-regional trade of all sorts of energy derivatives, uh, we've seen it be rather relatively low. How can we sort of break that? that mold uh, and, and sort of have the kind of um, I exchange that's going to help make a much more sort of efficient and regionally secure situation uh, that John's mentioning. Yeah, that's a, that's a tough problem. And, and when you go beyond energy, like the, the question was about energy, food, and, and water, uh, I, I personally take that as a personal issue because uh, at home we have three kids. The first has a water name to him. His name is Rayyan. In Arabic, someone whose thirst has been quenched. It's a water name. 
And then my daughter is Noura, Noor or Sunshine, or Little Sunshine, that's a solar name. <laughs> and I had a water company, I had water inventions, and then solar company. And the little one is Danny. In Arabic, we say, so in heaven, kind of your fruits and vegetables are close to you, then with you know, Danny, like, lower down to you. So it, it is, the kids have the, the water, food, energy nexus names to them. So that's been intentional. Uh, so that, uh, in my humble opinion, uh, I think energy is the first one to try to solve because if you have abundant, inexpensive energy, you can produce water and you can make food in controlled, what we call controlled environment agriculture. So kind of solving the water problem, but you don't have energy to move it or you don't have, uh, is difficult. So starting with trying to break that nexus, start with energy. Now within energy, we have energy, we have power. Uh, I've seen success on the power side in the Middle East more than the energy side. To be specific, you see interconnected transmission lines between countries. Uh, to your point, Phil, before the panel, we chatted about this, though peak countries use it in an emergency. But when we saw the crisis in Lebanon, there was a deal brokered between Lebanon, Syria, and Jordan to get electricity from Jordan through Syria to Lebanon. That's kind of nice, clean, effective way to transmit power across borders. And uh, for some reason or another, it, throughout the instability that the Middle East saw, we've seen a high level of integration of the electric power between countries. Egypt is connected to Jordan as well. Jordan is connected to Iraq, to Syria. Even with wars happening and so on, there's an integrated, what we call an integrated resource plan around power. Now, the U.S. has actually different power markets. So you have ERCOT, you have PGM, you have New York ISO, you have Midwest ISO, New York, uh, California, and so on. And that's a byproduct of the deregulation that happened in the late 90s called PURPA, similar to the deregulation of the telecom industry, the baby bells, and so on. In the Middle East, they tried to deregulate, even within the countries, and create these trans-code, gen-code, disco separation of companies and created an integrated resource plan. Many kind of got stuck in the process, didn't finish it. And that is causing massive inefficiencies. Uh, case in point, in Jordan, there's an entity called NEPCO, which is in charge of transmission, remained as a government entity and absorbed all the uh, deficiencies in trade between the cost of fuel and what's being sold to people. So you really need to move to a complete deregulation of the markets, and it's much easier in the power sector compared to the energy sector. When I say energy, meaning you know oil and so on. Um, integrating other resources like water and food, frankly, is more complex. A lot of people talked about uh, conveying water from Iraq to Jordan or conveying water from one place to the other. I haven't seen, we've talked about the Red Dead Canal, even though it's not, you know, fresh water. Uh, I haven't seen any major water projects happen in the Middle East. I don't know why. Maybe water is more emotional to people. Electricity, it's less visible. It's more techy. Uh, kind of the, the, the techies take care of it without uh, much fanfare. So uh, integrated resource plans around the power, food, energy nexus is a big one. And actually, people might not realize this. There's a map in the United States that lists and shows 
armed conflict around water. People get killed in the U.S. on an annual basis fighting over water. It's not a known fact, but it happens. So let alone the Middle East, you know, that you know, has much poorer countries uh, when it comes to water. It's a tough one. I don't have an answer for yeah. it. Uh, and I think the sort of the security angle is is clear. I mean, you know, in a world where we're shipping uh, liquid hydrocarbons out of a national economy, there's not as much incentive to actually trade with your local neighbors. Um, but if we're talking about the new energy economy, uh, whether it's uh, hydrogen, but especially exporting, let's say, green electrons uh, in the form of, uh, you know, uh, high capacity cables, uh, whether it's to other neighbors or to Europe, um, that interconnection is really going to be a part of the region's future. So the question is, can you overcome, let's say, the security concerns or any kind of distrust of neighbors? And does the financial gains, the potential financial gains, uh, help to actually build that trust uh, between the neighbors? I mean, as you said, we've seen in the GCC where there's a lot of infrastructure uh, that gets built, actually a, a dedicated um, high-capacity power uh, backbone uh, that's owned by the GCC, but the utilization is very small because you need to get the institutional parts right uh, and you need to get the trust between, between neighbors right. Um, <clears throat> we're going to go a couple of minutes over, so if we, we, you indulge just um, two more questions. I have one and then, and then maybe Dr. Anthony, I can, we can close out um, with yours. Uh, zooming out from energy just a little bit, um, you know, we just had the Future uh, Investment Initiative Conference, it's referred to as Davos in the Desert, uh, despite the kind of political tensions uh, that exist between Washington uh, and, and, and Saudi in particular at the moment, uh, you know, U.S. companies and investors really flocked uh, to this conference. Um, I want, would like to ask both of you, what does this tell you about sort of the relationship between Western business uh, and the kingdom or, or the wider region? And maybe a, a different question, which is, why were those businesses there? Is it because those investors, do they see Saudi or the, the new Saudi Arabia that's being touted as a genuinely attractive investment opportunity, or do they want to take in some of that uh, fantastically inflated uh, 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 PIF fun funding uh, from, uh, from a, a hydrocarbon windfall of the last two years. So are they looking to get money out or are they looking to put money in? Well, uh, the U.S. Uh, has uh, earned, uh, rightly so, uh, a leadership position in the world when it comes to entrepreneurship, when it comes to uh, creating solutions uh, that the world uh, is looking for. And that mindset of the business people in the U.S. Um, is backed by institutional setup when it comes to legal structures, financial structures, innovation, R&D, and so on. So I think uh, it's, a, it's a legitimate uh, aspiration to bring home some uh, dollars of the windfall, if you wish. Uh, but at the same time, you know, every, every business... Uh, the shareholders are expecting growth, they're expecting improvement of the bottom line. You've got local markets and you've got evolving or developing markets like in the Middle East and especially at the heel of high or you know, healthy hydrocarbon prices. So the profit center, if you wish, is there. And um, you know, it's like oil prospecting 100 years ago. It's the same looking at these new initiatives, uh, whether it's in construction, whether it's in energy transition technologies. We see large announcements coming out of NEOM, uh, backed by SIDF and PIF. 
Uh, I think uh, it's a very ambitious vision. It takes a lot of work, especially commitment, not from outside parties, but from within to make it happen. It's definitely not an overnight project with especially the very aspirational goals. Uh, but I would say it, it, I'm not surprised to see U.S. businesses flock, to your, to your point, to a place where funding is available and political leadership and commitment is, is available. I would expect exactly that type of people to show up. Great. Uh, John, do you have any comments on the attractiveness uh, or the, the, the fact that high-profile investors in business are so attracted to the region uh, despite sort of political trouble? Um, businessmen are after business. Politicians are after votes. <laughs> And so if businessmen listen to politicians, they'll never make money. Um, and businessmen have to think 10 or 20 years ahead. Business, uh, politicians come and go. Businessmen have to stay, and they need to look at the opportunity over 20 years ahead of them. And Saudi Arabia offers a lot of these opportunities. Having said that, a lot of the businessmen who visit Saudi Arabia, um, you don't see them at the FII because they are the invisible businessmen who are actually um, entrepreneurs trying to do the opposite of what you said. Uh, the ones who want to take money back home, asset gathering uh, persons are at the FII. But you see far more businessmen who want to invest in Saudi Arabia. If you take a flight uh, from uh, either London or Dubai, uh, usually on a Saturday or Sunday, the planes are filled with businessmen that have nothing to do with um, FII. Um, and that you wouldn't see five or four or three years ago. There is a genuine change that has to do with what Saudi Arabia is offering. The fact that Saudi Arabia is trying to localize, to build an industry. Uh, what was said before, um, with the contribution of the likes of PIF or SIDF uh, and beyond that, um, is really very different than, than just gathering assets. Yes, if you are the CEO of JP Morgan, you will go there and seek assets um, because you need to beef up your portfolio and you need to increase your AUMs, your assets under management. Uh, and the same for all the big banks because uh, if you are an investment banker, you want to do a deal, you get the fee and that's it. Um, but there are many, many more people that we do not see at the FII. They don't go to the FII and they go to all the other agencies, whether it's PIF or not, or the private entities, and they try to see how they can capitalize on many of these opportunities. There is a very, very unique offering that Saudi Arabia is proposing to the world. And, and I think that um, today there is no country in emerging markets other than Saudi Arabia that is reforming at the speed that they are reforming. Um, so um, my hat to them, uh, but one should should look beyond 
um, the the headlines uh, that try to to do what they do. You know, they're trying to show what Saudi Arabia is, and this is what FII is doing. Yeah. But I would tell you that um, there are many uh, medium-sized businesses coming mm-hmm. from the U.S. Um, trying to see opportunities, and and I was talking to recently one of them that is in the solar space and space, and she was actually going all over the country to places that. Uh, even Saudis haven't been so. Oh. Looks like we got cut off. But anyway, John, I think I take your scene below the radar screen of FII. Yeah. Um, no, I think I take your point. I think that there's an important part there that FII itself, uh, there's an argument to be made, is as much a public relations uh, opportunity to show the world the kind of changes that Saudi Arabia is making uh, as it is uh, a genuine sort of uh, a business transaction. So I guess what's happening under the surface uh, is as important as the headlines. Dr. Anthony, okay. uh, you mentioned um, earlier on, and several others made reference to it, using different vocabulary, affordability uh, of, of energy, and how far we have come from uh, 40 years ago in the last uh, Arab oil-induced uh, uh, boycott embargo of certain Western countries in response to U- U.S., uh, Dutch, and British policies in the Arab-Israeli conflict there. But a synonym for affordability um, is no longer uh, prices reasonable. Uh, many people think that our prices are unreasonable, uh, whether it's for a gallon of milk or Tootsie candy, Tootsie bar, candy, candy bar, Tootsie roll candy bar. There, um, if you look at this question of affordability from a perspective other than the United States, uh, what are we now, 350 a gallon, $4 a gallon, something like that? If we all went in a rocket right now to Brussels or to Antwerp or to Tokyo or uh, some other European capital, we would be playing $12 a gallon, $14 a gallon there. So how does this uh, calculate in terms of the perception of Americans uh, as, as whiners, as complainers, as the country that has the most uh, wherewithal in terms of GDP and the most um, income per capita uh, at, at the gas pump uh, compared to Europeans, for example, who do not complain nearly as much as Americans complain, and they're paying four times as much. I mean, you, you, you pay the same amount for a, a gallon of uh, Pepsi-Cola or Pepto-Bismol or head and shoulder shampoo as you pay pay for a gallon of gas here. And yet no one complains about uh, the uh, gallon uh, price for a gallon of Pepsi-Cola, Pepto-Bismol or head and shoulders uh, uh, shampoo here. Uh, On the interconnectivity aspect, which uh, indeed um, uh, was made reference to, I remember being at a head of state summit in Kuwait about 10 years ago where the Emir of Kuwait uh, flipped a switch and the electricity light bulbs came on in, in Bahrain, Saudi Arabia, and Qatar.
water at the borders because of cross and border connectivity for the fear of blackouts, uh, brownouts, uh, rather, uh, during the peak uh, times of the summer. Can you address this question of affordability, how we're seen, and uh, it's almost an ideological uh, position that people take. Said, oh no, it's so inflationary here. Uh, we're just uh, short of people uh, making votes for one party or the other based on the position of their candidates towards the price of, gal of, of gas uh, per, per gallon here. Um, others would say, well, the Europeans, the reason they pay more is because of taxes to pay for the highways, etc. Does that really cut the issue to the core? How, how are we to see this in the, in the round? What's the more mature, uh, accurate, analytical construct perspective to address this question of affordability? Yeah, I, I think it's a great question. Maybe I'll take just a very quick first stab and then give it over to the to the panelists. Um, I think sort of the sensitivity of American consumers to price, which is particular and feeds through into uh, having such an impact on politics as we are seeing today, uh, just with the Biden administration making such an effort um, and putting such pressure on allies to raise production in order to maintain uh, certain levels of gas prices ahead of the midterms when elections obviously uh, drive those kinds of sensitivities even higher. Um, those are based in a certain expectation which has been bred over a long period of very low taxes uh, around certain energy products. Um, I think in Europe that's much less because uh, the variability of uh, consumer prices is much less linked uh, to the underlying commodity because the tax burden is so much higher and expectations uh, are lower. I think where it's interesting and gets into the energy transition is where price uh, of alternatives, let's say, of electric vehicles, uh, suddenly start to undercut uh, either the mm, the running cost of a gas-powered vehicle, mm. uh, or at least to have a more stable long-running cost that's 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 lower. Um, and there, the question is, as you, to your point. Uh, if it's not then about price, but it's about the ideology of the technology, mm -hmm. uh, which says, you know, anything, uh, what have we heard from some politicians here in America, uh, you're demasculating my transportation, was one that I heard <laughs> from a representative. Uh, then, uh, well, it's not about the cost anymore, it's about an image. And I think that's an underlying issue, but maybe, uh, Yeah, I'll, I'll uh, try to add numbers to the answer, so kind of quantify uh, my answer. If you take uh, a Tesla Model Y, it will take you almost 300 miles on a full fill-up of electricity in the tank. And that is 70 kilowatt hours, let's say at 15 cents, that's $10 worth of electricity to take you 300 miles. If you're driving an equivalent average uh, US car, it'll probably be probably 15 gallons, maybe 18 gallons times, I don't know, three or four dollars. So let's say 15 times four, $60. So now we have $10 of electricity versus $60 of gasoline at three to four dollars for the same trip. Now the initial cost of the car, gasoline, or we call it ICE, internal combustion engine, is different than battery electric cars, but they're coming, they're, kind of that gap is closing. So for the first time ever, a driver has a choice other than using gasoline for transportation at the electric car level. Mm -hmm. And soon planes will have that kind of boundary condition and soon ships will have that. So for the first time, the difference nowadays is that there's an option and that 
option creates competition, and I think will always put the downward pressure. So gasoline price can't just take off unconstrained. Why? Because now if gasoline price goes up, more electric cars will be sold, and that operational differential is what a lot of people now in the US, for example, many places in the world say, I understand your truck is much more expensive when it's electric, but I'll finance it for you based on future savings on the economics. And it's actually net-net. It's, uh, it's a winning game for electric transport today. That's a great answer. Wow. Great. Uh, John, uh, maybe I'll just give you the last, uh, we're over time, couple minutes. How, how, do we should how should we think about affordability of energy? Well, uh, just something that uh, uh, Dr. Anthony said um, concerning the price of products versus the price of oil. Um, the price of oil today is roughly where it was um, around 2008, right? Prior mm -hmm. to the decline uh, with uh, the great financial crisis of 2008, 2009. But everything else has gone up. Has everything else gone down um, during this uh, period? No, everything has kept going up. Yet the price of oil has stayed the same, right? And I think that uh, oil has been unfortunately militarized um, by people, by uh, uh, policymakers, because it is an easy way to militarize and demonize oil. Um, everything else has been going up and it will continue to go up. Even during the stickiness of global inflation, inflation is not going to go down in the West and in the U.S. anytime soon. And the answer to that is not the price of oil. Uh, there, the answer to that is that we have a lot of liquidity, very low interest rates for a very long period of time, and there is uh, a, a lot of people with a lot of money. So when that happens, interest rates have to go up. And interest rates will stay up for some time. The problem is not the price of oil, but it is easy for policymakers to say, well, you know, it's the price of oil and we need to bring it down. And if we bring it down to $60, suddenly inflation is going to go away. I, I really doubt that this is the case. And um, Somebody has to write a paper on the link between oil price and inflation in today's um, situation of where we are. Uh, affordability will come, by the way, as economies of scale will unfold, but they're not going to arrive anytime soon when you see electric vehicles. Electric vehicles is the biggest myth that we have seen um, in the 21st century, uh, that suddenly they're going to be economical. It's going to take time to be economical, and it's going to take time to source the minerals that go into these machines. And they're not going to be clean. A Tesla car today is extremely dirty. However, the American consumer doesn't think about that, nor the shareholder of Tesla.
Thank you. Yep, thanks very much, John. And I'd be remiss to say that if I didn't say that, in fact, The Economist, we do track uh, the relationship between uh, commodity price and oil price uh, and inflation from region to region. Uh, in Europe, at least over the summer, about 90% of inflation was driven by energy. In the US, it's much more balanced. It's across the entire commodity basket. So from place to place, that relationship can shift a lot. Um, yes, um, but allow me, allow me to say that Europe was unique because of the natural gas and exactly. the situation. Europe had nothing to do with, you know, oil and, and Saudi Arabia, for instance. Yeah, yeah, that's a, that's a great point. Great. Thank you very much. Um, now we'll have the opportunity to go to the reception, but I want to thank uh, the speakers that were on the panel, uh, Shahab and John, uh, Dr. Anthony, obviously, for, for hosting us here today. Um, and with that, um, Maybe I can give no, you a word and then we'll move on. Thank, thank you, Philip. Thank you for the panelists. Thank you, John. Thank you, everyone, for being here. Now you're my guest.